Great to have you this morning. My name is G. I serve as executive pastor here at the City Life Church. Great to have you this morning here with us. And those of you watching us online, great to have you this morning. Open your Bible this morning to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to get right into the text. We actually have a lot to cover today. So hopefully I will have enough time to cover everything. If not, you're just here until later. Second service. I have all the time in the world. Um, Genesis chapter 4. Let's read the word of God together. We're going to read from verse 1. Hear what the word of the Lord says. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord said, A mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. This is the word of the Lord. So here it is. First murder in the history of men. From this moment in history, men will murder another man. A neighbor will murder another neighbor. Nation will wage war against one another, killing mass number of people. People will, people group will annihilate another people group by means of genocide. The world full of violence and evil, all started 
with a brother killing his own brother over a jealousy and hate. Today, we are finishing our gospel and series, and we're covering the topic on war. Very light topic. Thank you, Pastor Chris. If you're watching right now, I just want you to know I love you. But man, according to New York Times, at least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century alone. 108 million souls perished within one century. Estimated total number killed in wars throughout the human history, obviously this fluctuate, ranges from 150 million to 1 billion. That's 1 billion souls. Souls that bear the image of God some innocent bystanders all perish because of war. Since the first murder in history, the world has been at war. It's everywhere, isn't it? Even today, there's a war happening right now in Ukraine. But as Christians, we must answer this question. What is the main cause of the war? And second, and if there are any, what is the solution? And we will attempt to answer these questions today. And before we move forward, I would like to encourage you to join one of our rap sessions that's coming up. And this is going to be the last rap session where we will actually be able to have a dialogue on war. And today, I'm going to be posing a lot of things that I will not be able to even tackle in details. But the, but the rap session is created so that we can actually have a dialogue and have understand, better understanding uh, of issues such as war. And for the kids, there will be pajama-rama for your parents. So just letting you know, we don't want to forget the kids. But next week, we'll actually have a panel discussion on war, as we've been doing for last three topics. Do me a favor, would you? Get your phone. Get your phone, get your phone out, get this QR code, and please submit questions throughout the week, things that you will hear today, some things that you may disagree with me today, which is fine. Post it on the, the questions so we can discuss and we answer those questions next week. But we want to create a space where you can actually ask some of the things that I'll be addressing today, okay? Sounds good? So let's talk about war. Today, 
Even though we're talking about a physical war, I believe that there are many different kind of war. But today I want to talk about a three main wars. I call it tri-wars, which is number one it will be the physical war. Second one will be the cultural war. And but the most important, I believe, is the spiritual war. I don't know about you, but if you think about war, the image, everyone probably has some form of image that you have seen from the news or the textbook, whatever it may be, you have your view of the war, the devastation, and different things that you have seen with your eyes. And even today, thank, thank goodness for the media, but sometimes we see things that we just should not see, I believe. And it's just in front of us. We cannot avoid seeing what's happening around the world. World War I, World War II, and even in war in Ukraine, we see it. We see the pictures. We see the videos of the past, but also occurring how devastating the war can be. But we have to talk not only about the physical war, but we also need to talk about what is behind of these wars. And we will attempt to answer those questions. But before I do, I want to recommend you a book. And this book, I find it very useful. Um, great resource to own and have in the areas of a doctrine, apologetics, and the morality and Christian ethics. The book is called Christian Ethics by Wayne Grudem. Uh, on introduction to biblical moral reasoning. Uh, Dr. Grudem is a theologian who specializes in theology. Uh, he's well known for his work on systematic theology, and if you are into these kind of things, uh, we have a lot of intellectuals here, so I want to make sure that you get your fix. Okay. One thing I appreciate about this book is that he approaches with a biblical lens, the biblical perspective. And, and, and one thing that I appreciate very much is how we interpret it, because it is the view of the world that we'll talk a little bit about, but how do we interpret the world that we see, not only through our relativism, which I'll talk about, but through the biblical eye, through the scripture. And this is what he says in the book, Christian ethics is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teaches us about which acts, attitudes, and personal character traits receive God's approval and which do not? Christian ethics is God-centered and Bible-centered, giving us the paradigm of thinking, biblical worldview to interpret the issues of current culture. Everyone has worldview. Everyone carries a worldview. But as a Christian, I believe that it is critical for us to have the biblical perspective or the biblical worldview to, to interpret the things that we see right now that's happening around the world. Wayne Grudem continues, only scripture has the final authority to define which actions, attitude, and personal character traits receive God's approval and which ones do not. And therefore, it is appropriate to spend significant time analyzing the teaching of the Scripture itself. Against the current culture uh, or the current worldview of a relativism, the relativism is a belief that there is no absolute right and wrong. And so ethical decisions should be based on what is commonly accepted in each person's culture, which is 
cultural relativism or on each individual's personal preference. I'm sure you heard that word a lot, which is individual relativism. We see this play out in our current culture today, especially in the areas of sexuality, as we have discovered in gospel and sexuality. Individual relativism says it this way, what is right for you is right for you. And what's right for me is right for me. There is no absolute truth in relativism. And that actually is a problem because biblical worldview, or the scripture tells us we do have absolute truth, and that is found in the scripture. So it's a contradictory is what they were trying to oppose or to help us to see the world as is contrary to what the Bible actually teaches. Christian approach believe that Bible's ethical teachings are not merely a result of human thinking, but have been revealed by God himself. I believe that we need to begin this topic with this paradigm and this approach to better understand this issue that we have in hand. So let's dive right into the physical war. There are plenty of examples of the wars in the scripture. From the first world war recorded in history is actually in the Bible. Surprise. Civil war and the war that Israel were part of and God commanded Israel to go to war. Psalmist and King David mentions wars between Israel and their enemies, Philistines to Midianites, Assyrian to Babylonians, and even Romans. Bible records inevitable wars that took place in history. In Genesis 14, verse 1, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphael, king of Shinar, Ario, king of Elasar, Shadolomor, king of Elam, the Tilar, king of nations, last name, that they made war with Berah, king of Sodom, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeobim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, all these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, or the Death Sea, that we see today. Twelve years they served Sheldolomor, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So first war war recorded in history in the Bible. Next, civil war. Judges chapter 20, verse 12. Then the tribe of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men, who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. Civil war. 
And finally, the most famous war in the Bible, which is David and Goliath. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, now the Philistines gather their armies together to battle and war gather as a whole which belonged to Judah. They escaped between the Sohol to Azekah in Ephesus and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah to draw up the battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. You can actually go there today and see clearly where Israel was camping and where the Philistine camped. You can actually see the valley that's dividing between. It is so clear that there were actually a battle there. In Christian perspective, though, there are two main views that we need to discuss this morning. First is the just cause. And the second is pacifism. And I would like to talk to you a little bit about what pacifism actually stands. Now, the pacifist view holds that it is always wrong for Christians to use military force against others. And thus, it is wrong for Christians to participate in military combat, even to defend their own nation. So we get pacifism. There are six main arguments of pacifism over just cause of going to war. Number one, Jesus command us to turn the other cheek. The majority of you probably says, amen, that's what we should do, we should go forward. End of argument. Actually, no. Jesus' teaching to turn the other cheek was based on individual conduct and not civil government. Since war involves civil government and not a single individual, Bible teaches us that the civil government should bear sword to oppose evildoers and execute God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 4, very critical to understanding the role of a government, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. But there is no authority except from God and the authority that exists that are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you will have a praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practice evil. John and Paul Feinberg, in his book, Ethics for a Brave New World, said it this way, a fundamental problem with the pacifist interpretation of Jesus' teachings is the failure to distinguish between private and public duties, personal duties, and duties of a state. However, my responsibilities are quite different when I stand in the position of a guardian of a third party as a civil magistrate or parent. Because I am responsible 
for their lives and welfare I must resist, even with force, unjust aggression against them. Moreover, loving my neighbor or enemy does not mean I must stand idly by as, by as my child is kidnapped and murdered. I am to use whatever force is necessary to protect his or her life and safety. I 100% agree. I think about my own family. You know what? I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say it. Just even thinking about someone attempting to do evil and not stand idle doesn't make any sense. No parents would ever do such thing. So there's a flaw in the pacifism. Number two, Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, if we truly love our neighbors, then we will be willing even to go to war to protect them from evil aggressors who are attacking the nation. Loving the neighbor commanded by God in Leviticus 19.18 is also God who commanded Israel to go to war. Number three, engaging in military combat involves failure to trust God. Now, this is a tough one. It's like saying you have to have more faith. That's tough. Here is what Wayne Grudem has to say about that one. Romans 13, 1 through 4 teaches that God authorized government to use deadly force if necessary to oppose evil. Therefore, at this point, the pacifist argument is telling people to disobey what Romans 13 says about government and then to trust God to protect them anyway. This is like telling people they should not work to earn a living but should trust God to provide their food anyway. A better approach is to obey what God says in Romans 13 about the use of government power to restrain evil. And then trust God to work through that government power to restrain evil, which is how he intends governments to function. Number four, we should depend on international law rather than going to war. And I'm going to be very frank here. Last time I checked, No amount of international laws have prevented the war. Name one. I'll wait. You can put as much sanctions as you want. You can put as much laws as you want. Evil will continually operate as evil. There is no other function they will do. Nothing will stop evil from being evil. And if we see that, even Russia and Ukraine right now. Number five, the use of violence always leads to further violence. And pacifism should be adopted to stop that vicious cycle. And I think this is a naive thinking. To think that evil and violence can be stopped through pacifism. As I mentioned earlier, for example, it is the military force that stopped Hitler from taking over Europe. I hear something personal. It stopped North Korea from taking over South Korea. If that did not happen, I would not be standing in front of you today. 
It is because they saw the evil at its best. People, the nations responded to confront that evil. I stand before you because there were nations that were willing to sacrifice their own sons and daughters so that I can stand here and even the millions and millions of lives. It's not just South Korea, many nations around the world. Number six, more genuine Christian pacifism would have prevented previous wars. Again, I think that's naive. Would a genuine Christian pacifism prevented or even ended slavery or stop Hitler? I think the answer is pretty clear. Wayne Grudem says this way, the logic of pacifism would lead ultimately to a total surrender to the most evil of governments, which would stop and nothing to use their power to oppress others. That's who they are. They will not stop. So how we then approach the issue of war, I think the Westminster Confession of Faith describes the importance of a role of a government and how we should view war. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil, civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of magistrates when called thereunto in the managing whereof as they out especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasion. Now, question, how do we define or determine just war? And here are some criteria that I want to start. Number one, just cause. Is the reason for going to war morally right cause, such as defense of a nation? Number two, competent authority. Has the war been declared not simply by renegade ban within the nation, but by a recognized competent authority within a nation? Number three, comparative justice. Is it clear that the actions of the enemy are morally wrong? And the motives and actions of one's own nation in going to war are, in comparison, morally right. Number four, right intention. Is the purpose of going to war to protect justice and righteousness rather than simply to rob and pillage and destroy another nation? Right intention. Number five. Last resort. Have all other reasonable means of resolving the conflict been exhausted? 
diplomacy, international laws, and for believers, for Christians, prayer. Lord, is there any other way? Last resort. Number six, probability of success. Is there a reasonable expectation that war can be won? Number seven, proportionality of the projected result. Would a good result that comes from victory in war be significantly greater than harm and loss that will inevitably come with the pursuing the war? And number eight, and finally, which is the most important, I believe, is the right spirit. Right spirit. Is the war undertaken with a great reluctance and sorrow at the harm that will come rather than simply with a delight in war? In Psalm 68, 30, it describes a group of people that actually delights in war. And it says, rebuke the beast that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the people, trample on their foot those who lust after tribute, scatter the peoples who delight in war. Right spirit. And so I pose to you today two top, two views, pacifist and a just cause. And I believe the scripture is very clear that we do not believe the war, we're pro-war in a sense, but we believe that it is in the cause, if there is a just cause, if there is a reasoning, moral reasoning, then the war is necessary. So that's physical war. Let's talk about another war, which is the cultural war. Now this is an interesting you might be wondering, what is cultural war? I put it this way. It's the war of the worldview. It's the war of the worldview. Secular, secular worldview versus biblical worldview. And we see that being played out daily, whether you like it or not. In a way, the world is imposing a lot of these ideas on ideology to change the perspective on people. Whether it be Christians or non-Christians, there are things are being said that is contrary to our belief, our conviction, the truth that we hold. Again, earlier, I mentioned to you about the relativism. What's right for you is right for you. What is right for me is right for me. And this is the culture that we are in right now. But that's not the end, usually. It's not that what's right for you is right for you. Never with Christians, by the way. What's right for you, they will turn and say, is wrong. It's outdated. It's so prehistoric thoughts. We have a better idea in the name of progressivism, but if you check what progressive or progressivism actually propose, 
according to the biblical worldview and the principle you and I hold, the conviction that we hold is actually digressing, is not progressing as they want us to believe. Because the scripture has been given to us that the worldview that is formated within the Christian context is not what you and I think. We did not come up with what is right and wrong. Isn't that the story in the beginning anyway? That all the humanity is trying to figure out what's right and wrong. But when we fail is in the beginning. That God is the ultimate moral judge that gives us between right and wrong. He defines it, not us. Now we partake in the fruit. Now we're in this mess trying to figure out what's right and wrong. That's the entire story of humanity right now. All throughout the history, men are trying to figure out what is right. But God has spoken in his word. The word has been given to us in order that we may determine what is right, what is wrong, based on not our personal emotion thinking, but based on what God said and what God approves, what God actually has given to you and me. The world will constantly give you the ideas after ideas. They will create stuff as they go. But as long as I remember, as long as I have seen through the history that those who endure to the end are saved. Your conviction matters. Your worldview absolutely matters because that gives you a paradigm for you to interpret the world that you live in. If you just agree with everyone, per se because you don't want to hurt their feelings and if you truly love your neighbor you hold a conviction you hold the truth and you decide to say you know what what's true for you is not for me not for me you for you you do you I do me is that loving our neighbor when we withhold the truth I think we can all agree today that if you know somebody that is dying and you have a cure and you decide to withhold that cure, how narcissistic and selfish is that? But we do it all the time for some reason. We forget what we have, the gospel and the hope that's been given to us is the remedy, is the cure for the world. Tim Keller defines tolerance this way. True tolerance is revealed by how our conviction leads us to treat people who disagree with us. Tolerance that tolerates only people who think like us is not tolerance. It is covert prejudice. Covert Prejudice. Tolerance does not mean we have to agree with everything, with everyone. 
We can hold on to truth in one hand while extending the grace at the same time. This is what we are called to do. Now, the other side or the opposite is true, which is if we just hold on to the truth without extending the grace, we become a Pharisee. We become the judge and the executioner. We become a moral police. And that is also the danger. We have to find the balance, understanding it's been given to us, the truth, the conviction, the things you and I believe, our faith has been given to you and me. Are we to hold for just for ourselves but will we, even if we are persecuted? Last time I checked, Jesus said we are going to be persecuted. Sorry. Not my word. But should we reject our call simply because it's uncomfortable? Should we say, you know, someone else will tell them the truth. And we miss the opportunity to giving the hope of the gospel to the world that are desperate seeking an answer right now. And we can be the answer. I have so much to others to say, but I just don't have time. My goodness. I'll say this. Scott Sauls, in his article, Christian Might Regret Their Cultural War Wins, said it this. For the Christian witness to be taken seriously in an increasingly pluralistic and secular environment such as the West, Christian must learn the art of being able to, number one, have integrity in our convictions. And with having that conviction genuinely love, number two, listen to and serve those who not share our convictions and number three consistently do both at the same time otherwise rather than being a light to the culture we run the risk of becoming a product of the culture and finally spiritual if you ask me today why war why cultural war? I believe it is spiritual war. There is a battle being waged right now. This is an invisible war. But it is a battle between God and Satan. Good versus evil. Righteousness versus wickedness. And you are also part of this war, whether you like it or not. There is an enemy. And their own purpose of existence is to steal and to kill and destroy. 
It is naive for us to think that as a believers of Christ to acknowledge Jesus, the sinless life, the death and resurrection and the ascension and the supernatural power and the realm that we understand to be true and neglect that another supernatural figure this whole existence is to destroy. And I'm not trying to say that everything is the devil. Let's don't do that. Sometimes it's your own making. Ouch. But there is an enemy that is after us. So what do we do? If that's the case, if we know there are exist, the enemy exists, first we must recognize the enemy exists. C.S. Lewis put it this way, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hell, a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We must resist. If he exists, then we must resist the enemy. And how do we resist the enemy? You see, I love the fact that gospel message is that gospel that Jesus did not just left you and me alone. That he said, it is better that I go away. And you may be wondering, if you're one of the disciples at that time, you're like, what do you mean? I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad I'm part of this group. But he said it this way, it is better that I go away. And if I don't go away, I cannot send a helper. And this is where the third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, comes into the factor. You do not have to battle alone, ever. Did you hear what I just said? If you confess that Jesus is the Lord and you call yourself a Christian today, you do not have to ever fight alone because the helper is with you right now in this moment, not deserting you, but fighting with you, empowering you to do the amazing things because God cares about you enough that he's willing to send the Spirit. Not only that, this is where the community comes in. This is where the church is so vital. God is not finished with the church. God loves his church. And he's willing to die for the church. And here we are. You do not have to battle alone. Number one, you, don't have, you have Holy Spirit. Now you have a community of brothers and sisters that will stand with you and battle with you. Thank God that you do not have to battle alone ever, ever. So here is the gospel. This is how we answer these two questions that we had in the beginning. What is the main cause of war and what is the solution? 
And if you have stand for a while, you probably know the solution is, but I'm going to share with you anyway. The cause is whether it's simple, whether it is a mental health, whether it is sexuality, whether it is race, and even as detrimental and tragic as wars, we have to interpret or see through the gospel lens, the biblical worldview, that the root and the cause is the depravity of men, the original sin that at the beginning, the fall has caused this downward spiral. And the situation we are in right now is because the original sin. But the solution, you see, that's what I love about God. He did not just left us without the solution. And that solution is found in Jesus. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place. On the third day after his death and burial, he rose from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God and offering the gifts of salvation to all who repent and believe the gospel. What's the solution? Sure, it's not man's solution. Cosmic problems such as depravity of sin must be answered through God. It is the gospel hope that Christ has come in order to destroy the very thing that has been taken away from us, our relationship with God. And what Christ has done through the death and resurrection is to restore us and bring us back to the garden. It is God who initiates this restoration through Christ. And we see the beauty of our Savior, the love of God, the amazing grace. How? Can we not look at our loving Father God and say, thank you for sending His Son, one and only Son. And how can we not worship the Son who embraced the cross for us and promised to be with us forever through and by the Holy Spirit? What an amazing God we serve.